what kind of things that you think of. If you, you know, you had to kind of sum up the world in one word, what would it be? Um, and I would probably have had different answers to that question at, at different stages in my life and uh, at different times. But recently, when I think about the, the world, and I, I seem to keep coming back to, to one word. And it's not a particularly positive word, if I'm honest. Uh, one word is broken. You know, when I, I go online and I read the news... And I'm confronted week in and, and week out with stories of corruption. Stories about the worst of humanity. You know, just on Friday, I was reading a news report about two women who had been shot dead in East Sussex. 32 and 53 years old. You know, constantly in the moment, our news is, is dominated with stuff to do with Russia and everything which is, is going on there. You know, when things have been going on for a long time, the news doesn't even bother reporting it anymore, but it doesn't actually go away. And if you dig a little bit deeper, there's still a famine in East Africa. There, there's still conflict in Middle East. There's still about 24.9 million people around the world today who are slaves, including here within our own nation. The world is just full of, of brokenness. And when we look a little bit closer to home, we find that actually, in many ways, it's no different. It might not be on the same kind of scale that, that makes it onto the news. But there's still brokenness. There's still corruption. There's still a brokenness in our relationships. And as we're, we're hurt when words are spoken or when different things are done, there's still a brokenness inside of us. Because of the wounds and the insecurities and the fears that we carry. There's still a brokenness inside of us as we, we try to, to be strong and to carry these expectations and these pressures and, and kind of live with pride and arrogance. And maybe it's just what I've faced with recently and what I see as I look around. But when I look at the word, that one word, it just keeps coming back to me. The world is, is broken. And yet while... The world is, is broken and it's messed up. You know, in the middle of all of it, in, in the middle of all, of all of the mess, we, we have an amazing God. We have an incredible God, a God who, who loves us, a God who, who sees the struggles, who sees the pain, who sees the difficulties and, and reaches into the midst of it. Who is reaching into the midst of the brokenness and invites us to come close to him. You know, recently we've been taking some time together. Those of you who have been, been around, we've been taking some time together to unpack a vision that God gave to um, a prophet called Ezekiel. And, you know, he gave this vision to Ezekiel at a time when Ezekiel would have looked around at the world and all he would have seen is brokenness. Everything seemed to be going wrong. His people, the, the people of Israel had been taken into captivity. They were slaves in a foreign land. Their home had been destroyed. And not only their home, but, but the temple. The, the one place that represented the fact that God was with them on this earth. The one place that, that represented the fact that, that God was for them. That they had this special, unique identity as his people. That had been destroyed too. And as Ezekiel looked at, at the world around him, as he looked at the people around him, he would have seen brokenness. 
He would have seen people who not only struggled with, with a broken world around them on the outside and all of the consequences of that and the different pain of that, but of people who had broken dreams and broken hopes and were broken on the inside too. And it's in the midst of this situation that God gives Ezekiel the vision. A vision of, of transformation, a vision of dead and broken places coming to life. And Ezekiel writes about this vision, you can read it for yourself in chapter to 47. And then it begins with God showing Ezekiel a new temple. It begins with him showing Ezekiel a new temple on the earth, a new symbol of God's presence with his people. God's presence with us on the earth, that God hadn't abandoned them, that he hadn't left them, that he was there and he was with them. That in the midst of brokenness, he was present. And then from this temple, there, there flowed some water, and, and it was just a trickle. But this water, this trickle, it, it represented the life of God. It represented the Spirit of God flowing out from him into the broken world. And as the life of God flowed out, it defied all of the laws of nature, and this tiny trickle it didn't just soak into the ground, it grew. And, and it grew from being a trickle into a stream, and from being a stream into a river, and from being a river into a raging torrent. And wherever this river flowed, it carved out new ways. It went across the desert, it went into the Dead Sea, it went into with the kind of pictures of the world that are the most broken and lifeless and hopeless and dead places. Where there were no signs of life. And then this is what we read happens next. Verses 8 to 12. It says, when it empties into the Dead Sea, a place with no hope, a place with no life, a place with nothing, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enaglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit. Why? Because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Now, for some of you, you've heard me read those words quite a few times now. Now, but this is an amazing picture. A picture of transformation. It's an amazing picture of the heart of God to reach into brokenness. To reach into the places that seem dead and bring life. To bring hope. To bring healing. And this might be a vision that God gives to Ezekiel many years earlier. But it's a vision that we really see fulfilled in Jesus. You see, it's it's through Jesus that ultimately we see God reach into the midst of a broken world. To draw close to us and to live among us. No longer is it about a place like a temple. It's now about a person. It's about God himself in the person of Jesus choosing to dwell with us, to enter into the broken world for the purpose of bringing life. 
Because you see, all of the mess, all of the mistakes that we make, all of the the wrong things that we do, all of the ways that we turn our, our backs on God and go our own way, lead not only to a brokenness in this world that we can see so clearly, but it leads to a brokenness in our relationships with God. And so Jesus, he came and he he lived a perfect life as an example to us of, of the way that God intended things to be. He taught us how God intended things to be and how we can have a relationship with God. And he chose to, to die in our place. He chose to take the consequences of everything that we deserve because of the wrong things that we've done. He took it all on himself and said, as we trust in him, as we accept his sacrifice, that brokenness between us and God can be removed. And then Jesus, he gave this promise to us. He said, when I go back to be with the Father, when I go back and I, I ascend to heaven again, I will send another, another just like me, who will be your helper. I will send the Holy Spirit who will continue to teach you how to, to live this life with God. And will strengthen you and will help you in that. And I think this, this is where we begin to see that trickle. This is what began the trickle of the life of God, of the Spirit of God flowing into a broken world to bring transformation. It was when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the followers of Jesus for that very purpose. And you know, I don't think the followers of Jesus had a clue what was about to happen next. I don't think they had any idea about how this trickle was going to grow and become a stream and then a river and a raging torrent and bringing life wherever it went and transforming the world around them. Here's a picture of um, the city of Rome for you. Anybody ever been to Rome? A few people, not too many, a few people. Well, if you ever go to Rome, what you'll find in Rome is that there are crosses everywhere. You can see quite a few on the tops of the buildings and things in the picture, but they're on the tops of buildings, they're in gates, they're in on walls, they're all over the place. Everywhere you go, you'll see crosses. And these are images which celebrate Jesus. And, and yeah, we can be a bit dismissive of that. I think, well, yeah, it's the city of Rome. It's where the Pope lives. It's the center of the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, there's crosses everywhere. What's that all about? You know, and, and that's true. But think, think back with me for a second. Think back in time with me for a second, because the journey of this is actually quite incredible. If you can go back in time and you're thinking to around 64, 65 AD, the Roman emperor at the time is this guy. Nero. And he's just burned down the city of Rome. And he needs a scapegoat for it. And so he decides he's going to pin it on this new upstart little group of people called Christians. Because nobody really likes them anyway. And so he announces that the Christians have burned down the city of Rome. And he sends his soldiers to, to go and round up all of the Christians, to gather them together and to take them to what was known as, as Nero's Circus, which was nothing like a circus as we think of it. It was an arena. And in the arena, he makes sport out of persecuting Christians, burning them and feeding them to lions. 
So imagine if you could go back in time. You can get into Doctor Who's TARDIS and you can go back to, to 65 AD when all of this is going on. Jesus has died. He's sent the Holy Spirit. He's begun the trickle. And yet this is the reality that you're facing around you. You know, we go outside of the city of Rome and we visit a farm and behind the farmhouse there's this little barn tucked away. And in the back of the, at the corner of the barn, huddled together are three frightened Christian families. They've fled the city of Rome. They've lost everything they have and they know that if anybody finds out that they are Christians, that they will be taken to Nero because there's a bounty on their heads. And so imagine that we we sit down with them in the barn. We sit in the straw with these three frightened families. And we start to talk to them about how things are going to change. And we we say to them, do you know right now it might just look like a trickle, but it's going to change, it's going to grow, it's going to become a river. Do you know, right now it might look like everything's hard, but do you know, in a matter of just a number of a few years, the city of Rome is going to be transformed. And all across it, you're going to find crosses celebrating this Jesus. Crosses which aren't there because to celebrate Rome or to celebrate the brutality of crucifixion, but to celebrate the crucifixion of one man, this Jesus whom you worship. And one day, this movement that you're part of, might just seem like a trickle now, but it's going to become internationally known. It's going to be a global thing. There will be people on every country on the planet worshipping Jesus. One day there will be more crosses in this city that you have fled from than in any other city in the world. One day the, the temples of Jupiter and Mars, they're just going to be tourist attractions. No one's going to go there to worship anymore. The day will come when Christians go to Rome not to be persecuted, but to worship. Can you imagine what would have run through their minds? What would have run through the minds of these three frightened families? I think they'd have looked at you like you were crazy. Rome's a great empire. Rome's going to last forever. Yes, yes, we believe in Jesus the Messiah. Yes, he's the one who saves us. But we're only this small little group of people. We're only a small movement. We're only a trickle. There's no way that Rome will ever be turned upside down and surrender to Jesus. And yet within 300 years, which historically speaking is a relatively short space of time, there are crosses Everywhere in the city of Rome. He's the one being lifted up. And how does this happen? How does a small movement of persecuted people not only transform but outlast an empire? How does this trickle become a river that becomes a raging torrent that brings life and transformation wherever it flows? And I think one of the key, one of the key reasons that this happened is because the early followers of Jesus, they embraced his teaching to such a significant level that they not only believed in Jesus and accepted who Jesus was, but they embraced what Jesus said about their identity and who they were and what their purpose was and what they were called to be. 
They not only accepted who Jesus was, but they embraced the identity and the purpose that he gave to them. Because you, you see, it can be easy for us to start to think that a Christian is just someone who goes to church or someone who lives a good life or simply someone who believes in Jesus and who he is. But you know, when Jesus spoke about who we are and our identity, and he never used the word Christian. It's not a word that you'll, you'll, you'll find because it was, wasn't a, it was a derogatory term back then. When he spoke about who we are as his followers, it's not the way that he would have defined it. That's not the identity or the purpose that, that he, he gave. Jesus instead gave us an identity and a purpose which is not based just on, on what we believe, but an identity and purpose that is bigger than ourselves. An identity and a purpose that reflects what our lives are meant to be about. In Matthew 5 verses 14 to 16, as, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to the crowds of ordinary people who are following him and he says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's just go back to what Jesus said at the beginning because this is a big statement to make. Jesus isn't talking to his one or two uh, elite disciples, the best of the best. He's talking to the crowd in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying this is for all of us. Jesus is speaking about our identity. He's speaking about who we are once we become his followers. And he says, you, you, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Can you get your head around that? Can you even begin to say that about yourself? You know, when you wake up in the morning and you, you kind of get up and you look in the mirror, can you say, wow, that's the, right, the, that's the light of the world right there. Looking back at me. And, and I think we struggle with that idea. And we say, no, 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 no. I'm not the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And you're right. Jesus is the light of the world, but Jesus says, so are you. That when we become his follower, when you give your life to him, part of your identity that changes, part of who you are now, is that you are the light of the world. And this isn't something that we get to, to choose, well, am I going to be it or am I not going to be it? As followers of Jesus, it's simply who we are. And wherever we go, wherever God has placed you, whether it's at, at school or at work or at home with your friends or your family or your neighbors, you are the light of the world. In the midst of all of the brokenness and the mess you are the light of the world. And sometimes I think that's a little hard for us to, to accept and we feel uncomfortable with it and we don't really know what to do with it. But it is a part of your identity. Jesus is saying when the kingdom of God comes to you, 
When you give your life to me and the life of God, the spirit of God, the river of God that we we talked about with Ezekiel flows into you, you become the light of the world. Your identity as my followers is about so much more than just being forgiven. That's amazing, but it's about more than that. It's about so much more than just knowing that you're going to heaven. That's amazing, but it's about so much more than that. It's about so much more than just trying to to live a good life and the kind of life that, that God teaches us we should live. It's important, but it's about so much more than that. Your identity is that you are the light of the world. You have a purpose in the here and now in this life which is so much bigger than yourself. That's who we are. It's our identity as followers of Jesus. And all we have a choice over really is whether we're going to fulfill our purpose and let our light shine. Whether we're going to fulfill our purpose and allow the river of God, the life of God, the spirit of God to not only flow into us and to bless us so we receive from him, but to flow out from us to impact others. And that's why Jesus says, don't hide your light. Instead, put it on a stand. Let it shine before others. He's saying, I want you to to live your life in such a way that when people see your good deeds, and I think this is massive, when people see your good deeds, they don't go, wow, he's a really nice guy. he just do anything for anyone. What a nice chap. They go, are you kidding me? Who lives like that? Who's that generous? Who gives that stuff away? Who invites those people into their lives and into their families and into their houses? Jesus wants our lifestyles to be so extraordinary that people look at our lifestyle and they begin to connect the dots between us and our Heavenly Father. He wants our lifestyles to be so extraordinary that when people look at us, they don't look at us and say, what a nice guy and give us all the credit. Instead, they see something which they know is beyond us and give God the credit. You know, another time that that Jesus talks about our identity and purpose is right at the end. And and just as he's about to ascend to heaven and and his followers, his disciples are there with them and he's about to leave them. And so his disciples ask ask him a really, really obvious question. It's the kind of thing I'd want to know if he was, if I was in their shoes. And they ask him, Jesus, if you're going back to heaven now, are you going to fully restore your kingdom? Is this the time when you're going to fully restore your kingdom? Is this the end time? And Jesus says to them, whoa, that's not what I want you to be focused on. I don't want you to be focused on the end times. Leave that in your heavenly Father's hands. This is what I want you to be focused on. This is what I want you to be about in the here and now. And he says in Acts 1 verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is is what your identity is as followers of Jesus. This is what defines who you are. This is what defines us. In the midst of a broken and messed up world, 
You are a witness for Jesus. You are the light of the world. Someone who brings hope. Someone who puts on display the love of God. Someone whose life is about so much more than just themselves. Someone who allows the life of God, the Spirit of God, not only to be something which helps them and brings them joy and and gives them security, but allows the life of God or the Spirit of God to so shape them that it becomes a spring within them that flows out from them to impact others. And the reason that I think this small movement of people turned the Roman Empire upside down is because the followers of Jesus in the first century got this. They got it. You can read the most incredible stories from back in that kind of time when when plagues broke out and everybody fled, not just from villages, but from whole countries. Do you know what the Christians did? They said, that's my next destination. That's where I'm going. That's where I want to be. And they've traveled to those places so that they could be the light of the world. So that they could put on display something of the love of God and the care of God for those people. You can read the most incredible stories of of the martyrs. And as they're burned at the stake, how they're singing God's praises. And when these things happened, do you know what people noticed? They noticed that the followers of Jesus weren't afraid to die. They noticed that they had a compassion and they had a love. A love for other people that just meant they went, are you kidding me? This is extraordinary. And they began to connect the dots. The world was turned upside down, not by great preaching and great teaching, but because a community of men and women got it. They got their identity. They got their purpose. And they took it seriously. How as followers of Jesus, in the midst of the brokenness of this world, Our identity, our purpose, our calling is that we are the light. We are the living representatives, the living witnesses of Jesus. That's a big old calling, isn't it? And so the question becomes not, will you be my witnesses? Not, will you be the light of the world? That's just who you are. You can't change that if you're a follower of Jesus. The question is, what kind of witness will you be? In the midst of the brokenness of this world, in what way will you let your light shine? Like Nick was talking about earlier, in her workplace, letting her light shine. So that the river of God not only flows into you, but flows through you into the dead places, into the broken lives. And brings life, brings hope, brings healing. 
And you know, as we, as we look at these kind of verses, and as we look at how the early church began to put this into practice, we see great examples of it through the book of Acts and how the followers of, of Jesus lived this out. And what becomes really clear to me as I, I look through the book of Acts and I look at these different examples is that we can't do it on our own. Because if all we do is we, we do our best to try to be nice, loving, caring, serving people who, who put other people first, people just look at us and go, wow, you're a nice guy. What a nice bunch of people. It's not bad, but it misses what God's got for us. It's good and it's important and we want to look for those opportunities to be loving and caring and serving. But if our lives are going to be extraordinary and not just draw attention to ourselves, but draw attention to God, then we need more than that. And the two key things that stand out to me as I look through the book of Acts and I look through the early church and and, and what kind of typifies it is that What I see again and again and again is prayer and the Holy Spirit. You know, after Jesus has told them to wait in Jerusalem and that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came on them, we read in Acts 1 verse 14 that they all joined together constantly in prayer. You know, we get this image sometimes that they're they're huddled away, scared in this room, locked away and hiding from from the people who want to get them. But that's not the image that we get as we look actually at what Scripture says. We get an image of these people who gather together with a waiting purpose in prayer. Expectant, waiting and looking for what God was going to do amongst them. And it's something that we see again and again when Paul, when he's writing to the Colossians about how we can go about being the light of the world. Witnesses of Jesus. He says this in Colossians 4 verses 2 to 4. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And so I want to encourage you and I want to encourage me and us as a church together. I want to encourage us to pray, to devote yourselves to prayer. Not just for yourself and your family and the situations you're facing and the different things that are going on in your life, but to have a a bigger perspective. Pray that God would open doors. Open doors for you to be a witness. Open doors for you to be a shining light. Open doors and that he would help you as those doors open to know what to do and what to say so that you can shine as brightly as possible and be the most effective witness that you can be. Pray for the people that you're connected with who don't know Jesus. For your family, for your friends, for your colleagues, for your neighbors. You know, we can't help people without prayer. We can't be effective witnesses or lights that shine brightly without prayer. Because people will just look at us and say, what a nice guy. And yet we have the same God today as the Christians did in the first century. And so prayer has the same power to produce the same results and in this window of time when the disciples are there and they're, they're in the, gathered in that room and they're waiting and they're expectant and they're looking for the power of God, they choose to pray. 
That's what the followers of Jesus knew they needed to do. If they were going to fulfill their calling to be witnesses, to be the light of the world, they prayed. The second thing that we need if we're going to be effective witnesses for Jesus is that we need to receive the Holy Spirit and to know his power at work in our lives. You know, in the verse we read earlier in Acts 1 verse 8, you know, that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, our identity and our purpose is that we're to be witnesses, but he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and it is that power that will enable you to be witnesses. And I think we can get mixed up sometimes around this whole kind of area. Because you see, the Holy Spirit is is always at work. He's at work in every single person's life on this planet, whether they know Jesus or they don't know Jesus. He's reaching out to them and he's at work in their lives. And, and we, we look through the Bible and we look at our own experience and we hear different teaching and, and we know that, that when we give our lives to Jesus, that when we, we become Christians, when we receive salvation, that, that the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and we already have the Spirit and he's there and he's inside of us. But you know, there's a difference between that and receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes on you in a special kind of way that Jesus is talking about here. There was a a great teacher called um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And and he describes the the difference by saying that our Christian experience is a little bit like that of a child holding their father's hand as they walk down the road. And and when we give our lives to Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, we we know God, we know our Father with us, and we're holding his hand as we we go down the road, and so we feel safe, and we feel secure, and we know that he's, he's there. And then there will be moments... As, as the child and their father are, are walking down the road, when the father will suddenly surprise the child and he'll sweep them up off of their feet and he'll pull them into himself and he'll give them a hug and he'll kiss them on the neck and then he'll hold them out and he'll look into their eyes with such obvious love and say, I love you. I'm so glad you're mine. And Lloyd-Jones, he says that that's what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to not just be living in you and to be with you, but to receive the Holy Spirit's power. In fact, he goes on to write this, and I'm going to read it because I just think it's beautiful. He says, when we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what he writes. He says, the fuses of love are so overloaded, they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that he wasn't thinking about at the time, but that pop up every now and then, they're gone. And in their place is utter and indestructible assurance. So that you know, that you know, that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved and that to be saved is the greatest thing in the world. And as you walk on down the street, you can scarcely contain yourself and you want to cry out, my father loves me. My father loves me. Oh, what an amazing father I have. That's what it's like to be clothed with power from on high, he says. A driving out of any doubt, of any lack of assurance or gladness of heart, a blowing of the fuses of our hearts under the weight of God's delight. That's an amazing picture, a beautiful picture of what it's like to receive the Holy Spirit's power. And one of the things that it captures is that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, 
In this kind of a way, it moves us to want to shout about it. To want to share it with others. This is my God. This is my Jesus. Oh, how he loves me. And do you know what? He loves you too. The power of the Holy Spirit is what moves us and what enables us to fulfill our purpose as witnesses for Jesus. And if you go and you read through the book of Acts, that's what you will see again and again. And it will, it will say all over the place, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just once, but again and again. It happens time after time, not just as a one-off, but repeatedly. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And pretty much every time, what does it go on? It says when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke boldly about who Jesus was. They began to shine more brightly as the light of the world in the midst of so much brokenness. Now, I don't know about you, but I say right now, I am so aware of the brokenness in this world. I'm so aware of the brokenness in, in the lives of people, people around me. And while I, I try to follow Jesus as best I can and I try to, to, to shine, I rarely feel like I make that much of a difference. I feel like I can be a nice guy. But I don't feel like I'm shining very brightly. And yet Jesus says, that's my identity. That's your identity. We are the light of the world. We are his witnesses in this world. We are here today not only to receive from God, not only to be blessed by God, not only to allow the river of God to flow into us. But we have a purpose that is so much bigger than ourselves. Jesus gives us an opportunity for our lives to count for so much more. He gives us an opportunity for what we do in this life, in the here and now, to matter for eternity. As we not only receive from God, but we become a spring from which the river of God is able to flow out from us to impact others, to bring hope, to bring healing, to bring love, to, to somehow bring life in the midst of a broken world. 